All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Welcome to Dropping the Gloves, take two. I get so excited, and I'm excited because we got a guy. We do this this segment on the show. It's a haul or not, and this guy, it's 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 a pretty interesting. I don't know. It could go either way, but David Backus is on the show. Very excited, David. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So, where are you at right now? Back home in Minnesota. In Minnesota currently, uh, yeah, and enjoying a nice hot summer that the summer has given us. It is good. So I we do these interviews every so often. I only interview guys I like, respect, want to talk to. I don't like interviewing. We did one interview I didn't want to do. It ended up terrible. We didn't even air it. So when I heard you retired, I was like, we got to get him on the show. This guy I have battled against for years going back to college, going back years and years and years. And I've, we've never really talked to each other other than a one car ride from the airport to Mont Tremblant. And that was it. That's it. And with all due respect, I hated your guts um, because you played such a physical style of hockey. I respected the heck out of you. So I'm excited. And we didn't talk before. And this is going to be good. I'm excited to get this conversation going. So I did a little digging. You obviously grew up in Minnesota. You were all conference in high school, all Metro, all state. You were a finalist for Mr. Minnesota hockey award growing up in Minnesota where it's so hockey crazy. Did you just know NHL or bust? Uh, I actually didn't think I was going to play in the NHL. My goal was to get a scholarship, play D one hockey. And that was my goal. And I wasn't even thinking about the NHL until I was in junior. And all of a sudden people with NHL, uh, logos on their jackets all of a sudden staying after to say hi and I'm like what are you talking to me for there's other guys I figured they were more interested in and all of a sudden agents and all the works are coming out and you're like this I mean I might get drafted this might be kind of cool the idea of making it to the NHL though I I guess I'm a realist and I know the numbers and I'm a numbers nerd so I said chances are I'm not going to make it but if I can get free school and not have college debt to uh, start my life then hockey served its purpose for me. And turns out it uh, more than served its purpose for me. So Minnesota hockey's like one, one, a one B, then you got the Vikings and the twins. So you, did you skate with any NHL guys in the off season? Was there like, cause I know when I was playing in Minnesota, we would have these camps and there would always be high school kids buzzing around just to kind of fill up spots. Were you exposed to the NHL guys when you were in high school at all? No, I looked up to, uh, I'm sad to say, the gopher guys when I was younger. Um, you know, the the wild weren't there until I was a freshman, sophomore in high school. So uh, I, you know, admittedly owned a wild jersey at one time and uh, looked up to those guys, I'd say, through high school, but was never really integrated. I think I was a late bloomer, too. I was probably 6'3", 175 pounds leaving high school and um, couldn't really control my long limbs and really had to sort it out starting in the junior game and then uh, getting to college where you're 
you know, you got the meal plan, you're able to spend a ton of time in the weight room, just playing the weekends. I think that was huge for my development that I was able to, you know, put on some meat onto my bones. Otherwise these guys that are playing the NHL at 18, 19, 20, especially back when we started, I would have been broken in a million pieces and never probably recovered. So um, yeah, it was, I was a late bloomer. So I never was really engrossed into the pro hockey on a personal level, but like watching Darby Hendrickson and local guys that played for the wild. To me, those were the guys that was like, that's so cool. If I could, you know, ever do that, that would be a dream come true. And uh, never for the hometown, but definitely, uh, you know, played my fair share of games and fooled them for maybe longer than I should have. <laughs> definitely longer than you should have. <laughs> <laughs> so, Minnesota hockey here is big now, right? The guy's got that YouTube channel, the lettuce, the salad. Was it big when you were playing? No, I I don't even recall that when I was playing. No kidding. So you, how short was your – has your hair always been crew cut? You never had the flow? I had some, some long curly locks that uh, my current wife, who was my girlfriend back in high school, uh, would pull through the cap and – Photos are available uh, for the right price, probably. But, uh, yeah, I had some curly locks. I can't say I had the, you know, middle of my back or covering my complete ear or some of the uh, less than appetizing styles, the the full mullet that are intentional. I think if there was a mullet back then, it was either unintentional or someone actually thought it was cool due to family lineage. But uh, Not ironic like it is now. Like, look at me. I got a mullet. Isn't it cool? Yeah. So- Listen, I, I rattled off all your awards, all conference, all, all Metro, almost Mr. Hockey in Minnesota, which is a huge deal. Why did you not go to the Gophers then? If you mentioned they were your team, you're from Minnesota, it makes perfect sense. Go to the U of M. Why would you go to Mankato, which is a relatively sub- small school for our listeners, kind of outside of Minnesota? Why not go to U of M or even St. Cloud, which is, you know, I would argue a little bit better school at that time than Mankato was? Or Duluth. Or, or Duluth, yeah. Bemidji, perhaps, or any of the other. Right. D1. There's a lot of options. What What were well, your options like your senior year? Well, my I committed after my junior year. Mankato came to me. Uh, there was a connection between my high school coach and the coach, Troy Judding, in, in Mankato. And um, they came to me and were offering me a 90% scholarship. And I was like, wow, you know, like that's that was my goal, like I said, to play Division One college hockey. But I wanted to play for the Gophers. And I was – talking informally with the Gophers and I went to them and I said, just, just say you'll give me a 10% scholarship and I won't take the deal in Mankato just to show me that you're actually really interested. And I got the, the, you know, company line of go back, play another year. We'll see what happens. And, you know, maybe after your senior year, you play a little junior, um, you know, maybe there'll be more interest then. And I said, you know what, Mankato stuck their neck out and they believe in me. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show them some loyalty and let's, let's do this deal. Well, I played my senior year um, in high school and then I played one more in junior and had a ton of success that year with Lincoln and then Mankato up me to a hundred percent. I think, you know, the way it works, it's only a one-year deal. I probably could have left, but that's uh, just not who I am. And uh, I think it worked out pretty well for me. I was able to go to Mankato as a freshman, step in, play big minutes, play, all situations, get into a leadership role in year two, be a captain in year three and, uh, you know, leave for the professional ranks after that. So I think it, my trajectory was, was perfect for me, especially playing on some big ice and having to get my feet moving a lot more for a guy that never was a great skater. So I think, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And and that was the path that I was supposed to be on. And thankfully either the counsel I was getting or my own intuition, uh, I was able to follow that path. And you, you nailed it when I, when I, when you said that you would have maybe not gotten the opportunity because those gopher teams, they were loaded with first round draft picks, especially yeah. those first few years. They had Vanek and Paulie Martin and Keith Ballard. Like they had some pretty uh, Troy Riddle was there. Who's a, a lesser known star. So Going to Mankato, you stepped on. You played three three productive years at Mankato. Your points were pretty consistent across the board. Yeah, I think you have 39, 40, and 42 in three years, which is very good in college hockey. You know, it's a very tight checking game, especially in the WCHA at that time. It was very high level. What did you 
attribute your success to walking right in? Was it just the different regimen you did for training? Was it the coaches or just, you were a big boy. Like I remember playing against you tech would go up to Mankato and I was like, gosh, his back, this guy is a mule in front of the net. Well, that's high, high accolades from your big body. But um, I think the success was more of, I took my time. Like I wasn't in a rush to get there when Tim Jackman left, which would have been my you know year after my senior year in high school, my full junior year. Um, Mankato all of a sudden was said, Hey, we got a spot for you. Come join us. And um, I guess in my own head, I said, if they wanted me to be in a regular role, they would have had me regardless whether Tim Jackman left or didn't leave. And now they've got a spot. I'm not saying I wouldn't play every night, but is it more productive to be the guy or one of the three guys in Lincoln with Danny Ehrman and Ryan Patoni and myself, you know, to have success, play a ton of minutes. And, um, you know, then that was our draft year and then figure out what the heck happens in the draft and then go to Mankato and still have four years to develop there. If, you know, it wasn't the hurry up. I feel like now it's like, get these guys in the NHL and get them going. And like, if you don't play right after your draft year, the second year after your draft year, your time's ticking. And if you haven't played a regular role by 25, like too bad, you know, maybe you catch on with a bad team that just needs a body. But I just think the development, uh, you know, and maybe it's because it was a man's game more back then of like, you couldn't come in undersized or under strength or a step slow or not have the instincts to get by a guy or he's going to take your head off. And that was just the way the game was played. So I think it was, I took my time. I played the extra year junior. I went to Mankato for three, uh, even after a lockout, um, you know, didn't rush to play in the A that year and everything just seemed to have been paved you know, for me to have the success that I did. And then I went after my uh, junior year, went and played some games in Peoria and really was a wake up call to me of, um, you know, humbling of, you know, I was, I was kind of the guy in college. And then I got to that uh, HL level. And I'm like, dang, there's men out here, even a bigger step. And I got to work my butt off this summer and then not making the camp, not making the team out of camp the next year, playing up until Christmas and the minors again was, was kind of devastating to my pride a bit because I always made every team. And now it's like, Hey, you're in the minors. You left school early. You could have had a senior in school. Now you're in the minors. You're in Peoria, Illinois, no offense to Peoria, Illinois, but it wasn't the most grandiose spot to be on top of the difference in pay. I was making 50 grand a year instead of the five fifty I would have made in the NHL, you know, instead of, flying chartered planes and staying in Ritz Carlton, you're on the bus and staying in whatever super eights got a couple extra rooms at night. So to me, it was a motivating factor to prove them wrong that I should have been on that team. And then when I got my chance under Andy Murray, um, you know, and he kind of switched me to center in a, in a big man's game in the Western conference, then, uh, you know, I just think of all the things that fell into place for me. It was, it was just, someone else had their fingers on that story and and I'm glad you know to have lived it you just said yes and kept rolling yeah. which is important you know do you mention this I didn't know you were a winger in college and got switched to center how hard is that <laughs> well I think the godsend is we were I was in St. Louis and it was dead last place team in the league and, you know, 10,000 fans at games pre COVID, obviously, you know, it was like, this is not getting any lower. This is your best chance to learn on the job. And Andy Murray was a great teacher. So he would sit down with me and analyze and protect me for the first while and not give me the D zone starts. And, um, you know, I just think it was a, a great opportunity for me. And, um, you know, ran with it and it was proved to be successful. Was able to play with some incredible wingers. Uh, you know, I had one line that was TJ Oshie and Paul Correa at one time, like what, you know, like TJ Oshie and Alex Steen and we were match up against other teams, best lines and winning that matchup. And Ken Hitchcock would giggle to me afterwards. Like, you know, you know how miserable that is for an opposing coach when their top lines getting out competed and outworked and outscored by our, you know, and, it was just, it was just an awesome ride. 
So backing up a little bit, you were drafted in 03, which is arguably the best draft class of all time. And you know, to our listeners, like go look it up if you're not familiar. It's like the list just goes on and on. Did you realize at that time that that was like a special group you were coming up with or just or did you just kind of just not realize that? Um, outside of my agent saying that this is a deep draft class, I guess I wasn't, you know, feeling the gravity of, you know, Mark Andre Fleury, Eric Stahl, uh, you know, go down the list. It's, it's incredible. So, you know, able to play with some of those guys along the way, you know, another fellow second rounder and Patrice Bergeron in Boston and, you know, Getzlaff and Anaheim, you know, all the guys that I was able to play with in that draft class seem to have something special. So, also look back at that and it seems like if you drafted well that year first and second round you set yourself up for some really good success and if you missed you struggled for a while and you know do do the math like that was a a good year to make a great pick in the first round so then uh, you played a little bit in the AHL but you get called up into the NHL a few years later and then less than a minute into your first shift you get your first NHL point assisting a goal by Doug Waite I mean Obviously, he's like a, a well-established veteran, probably someone you looked up to. How did that feel, especially helping out one of the better veterans in the league at that point? I think I overstayed my shift for sure in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and, uh, it sounds better than it was. The puck hit me in the hand coming up the wall. I just sealed the wall, went behind the net to Radic Dvorak, and then he passed it out front to Dougie Waite. And um, it actually is worse than that. I was carrying the puck down the wall, absolutely got smashed in the wall, down. I stood up. Sealed the wall, puck hit me in the hand, Dvorak, Doug Waite, goal, celebration, cloud nine. Um, so I hate to downplay my own story, but it wasn't the most glorious assist in the world. Um, but the team hadn't won in like 10 or 12 games straight. And then we beat Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh on Sidney Crosby coin night. So um, that was a that was a memory that I obviously have still vivid. Take that, Sid. Did you know you got the the assist when it hit you, or did you were you waiting for the sco- the the announcer? Oh, I'm always waiting for the announcer. You know that. It's like, no, I know that. I'm like, come on, baby. <laughs> I should have got the come on. Yeah, like I sent that cross ice and it hit the D man, but he really didn't have possession. Come on, like those are momentum and confidence, either boosters or killers at times, especially when things are tough and you could you just need to scratch and claw for one and then all of a sudden you might get a little feeling back in your game so there's nothing worse than as a d-man you like you shoot it and the puck goes in it's like how many sticks did it hit did it bank <laughs> out did it bank off someone's shin pad and, you, and you're like come on you never get the assist and when i when you only have like 11 career points david they all matter they all matter i can like vividly list all my assists it's sad <laughs> All right, let's fast forward. So you had a good first few years in St. Louis. Very good. Let's be honest. You you played really, really good. 2008 rolls around. You're an RFA. This is tricky. So the offer sheet is a thing where if you're RFA, another GM can come in and offer you a, a contract. You can sign it. Your team has, I think, a week to match it. Yep. I didn't realize that you signed an offer sheet. I was, you know, I was – just starting off in the league. I didn't know what was going on. I just learned this like a couple days ago and it fascinates me. So you're still a young kid. Were you, and you don't have to answer the question if you don't, were you not happy with St. Louis? Were the negotiations not going the way you wanted to go? How does that work where all of a sudden Vancouver slides in? They're obviously, you know, contact your agent. They offer you this good deal. What happens in that week span where you're like i'm not getting it from st louis i'm going to sign with vancouver walk us through the whole process because I, I think it's fascinating okay whole process is uh, i played a year and a half up in st louis and started to establish myself we were i was playing with lee stempniak and jay mcclement as kind of a kid line that was climbing up the ranks we were probably a third line in my second year but checking other teams better players and really relied on and felt like i had some worth i was playing physical and kind of you know, cutting my teeth the way that guys used to. You led the league in hits. I think you had 240 hits. Yeah, a bit of a meatball. Kind of when, the, yeah, when, the, when you guys, when they stopped the holdup by the defenseman and it was strict where you couldn't even give the guy a bump and it was like I could dump it in, strong side D-man could not touch me and the weak side D-man was going face first into the wall and was just, I was licking my chops on him and I had to fight probably more than I ever wanted to because I was just taking liberties, but it's how I was establishing myself in the league. So um, I felt like I was, just, you know, 
proving myself. And uh, it was after the season expecting or hoping to sign an extension with St. Louis. And there was zero contract talks and it was July, you know, it was coming up on free agency. And I really didn't even know the process. And my agent said, Hey, it's July one tomorrow. Anything can happen. Just keep your phone on. And I was truthfully in Hawaii on my honeymoon with my wife. And so Hawaii time, you know, it was, I don't know, it was eight or 9 AM Hawaii time. And my phone rings and my agents laying it out. And obviously with your agent, you've, you've got projections on what your next contract was. And I had okay numbers, but they weren't great. And back then I was, you know, if St. Louis offered me probably a million or a million and a half dollars for one or two years, I would have signed it. And so July one comes free agency opens and we get the call from Vancouver. that says, Hey, we want you for three years at two and a half. And we're going to include signing bonus. And, you know, I sat back and it was like, St. Louis has done nothing to try to, um, and it was Larry Plow back then before Doug Armstrong's reign, but it was, they've done nothing to try to sign me. And now I've got a legit contract in front of me that I'm going to make more, you know, in year one than I thought I would have in two years, probably with St. Louis. And this is a three-year deal. It's guaranteed money. It's seven and a half million with signing bonus. Like I have to sign this. And, and Vancouver's a great team at that point. They got the okay. Sedins, they got Burroughs, they got Gosh, all these great players. Yeah. It was like, they, they were Roberto Luongo. Like they yeah. were tender. So I signed the deal and, Truthfully, in our hotel room in, in um, Hawaii, my wife's like, well, we love St. Louis, and it's such a great city. And I'm like, I don't want to go to Canada. It's cold. I'm like, Kelly, do you have any idea about Vancouver? Like, Vancouver is an incredible town. And we started looking it up, like, where it is. And it's, like, one of the most livable cities in the world. So all of a sudden, she's excited about it. And my agent calls me back, and, like, we, we signed the offer sheet. You know, St. Louis left seven days to match. And um, – it was like three or four hours and they called me back and said, Hey, we're matching this. Like, this is not a question. We know you're part of the future. And um, I was humbled by it. Uh, and so that contract, then St. Louis just matches it and you play for St. Louis and Vancouver loses nothing. They just kind of helped you make more money, I guess at that point. Uh, so we were back to St. Louis and my wife was like, Oh, but I was kind of getting high on the Vancouver idea. The sushi, David, the sushi. Yeah, exactly. The walking everywhere. Um, so that was it. And then they, uh, St. Louis reciprocated and offer sheeted Steve Bernier as kind of, uh, repercussions for offer sheeting me. And, and that was kind of how that all went down. There was never any hard feelings I felt from St. Louis or for me to St. Louis. I think it was, one of those things where they felt if they could get past July one uh, with the restricted free agency and I hadn't had an offer sheet. Now they had all the leverage and yeah. I was making less than a million bucks. Cause I really didn't have another option. Uh, you know, I think they kind of had some, some Monday morning regrets on that one, but so be it. And it worked out, I think well for both sides. I think I, I think I scored 30 goals that year and it probably was, underpaid shortly thereafter you know not that you're ever underpaid at two and a half million bucks to play hockey because we're so grateful to have that opportunity but market wise I think if it would have been a one-year deal and I scored 30 goals now you get into one of these crazy contracts that are you know especially at that time there were no term limits there were no you know front load back load any of that stuff it was just do your deal and uh, you know average it out so do you have a conversation with the GM does Larry Plo call you and be like hey David sorry I dropped the ball. We should have talked to you earlier or, or was there nothing? No, it was John Davidson at the time. And he okay. called and just said, or he was the president and just said, Hey, Hey, big boy, you know, you're, you're part of this team going forward. You're a big part of the core. We're happy to have you for three years. And uh, you know what? Business is business. We'll see you in camp. And you know, there was never like uh, this guy, you know, tried to leave or any of that stuff. I think they knew they dropped the ball a little bit and ended up paying for it. But at that point we might've been struggling to make the floor with, you know, we had some big boys when I got there with Bill Guerin and Doug Waite, Dallas Drake, Keith Kachuk making a lot of dough, uh, that deal. And then maybe we signed Paul Creer shortly thereafter to maybe get to the floor at that point. So I want to ask about the Olympics, um, for a guy you played in, in two different Olympics, 2010, 2014. And for a guy who didn't really think he had a shot at making the NHL, it's, I mean, playing on the highest stage, repping your country is just kind of amazing. What do you, what do you think about when you look back on those runs? Amazing is a good adjective. Uh, you know, that was probably the most fun 
you know, I would put that in the Stanley Cup final I was in with Boston um, as the most fun I'd have playing hockey. Unfortunately, took second place in both those championship uh, scenarios. Um, but that stage to wear your country's colors, to be, you know, in the Olympic Village in Vancouver to have your family around, to be in North America, to feel safe, to walk around the city. Like what an awesome, I just think for hockey, that was a awesome Olympics to have. Um, Sochi, similar experience. I was TJ Oshie's roommate in Sochi. So when he's scoring 15 goals in the shootout, my favorite story is he came back after doing NBC and all this stuff and he's got makeup on and he comes in the room. He's like, don't you think they're making kind of a too big a deal out of this? And I'm like, you have no idea like what you just did. You're like, that's kind of humble guy. He is, um, you know, back to 2010, just the way that team came together, Ryan Miller's performance in net uh, with Tim Thomas, you know, standing by and uh, Jonathan quick, you know, waiting in the wings, what a team that was. And um, really forever memories that, uh, you know, no one can take away and, and that are very fond for my hockey playing days. Your wife just walking around Vancouver going, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Which condo would it have been? Yeah. It would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> What's the appreciation on the houses here? It's probably ridiculous right now. <laughs> so in, in 2014, you guys didn't really do nearly as well. I think you got blown out in the bronze medal game. Like what do you think was the biggest difference over the last, you know, the four years prior? Tim, ouch. Yeah, that's a kick in the groin. Um, well, I think just the way it laid out, we played Canada in the semifinals. So we lost to them one nothing in the semifinal game. That was obviously to go to the gold medal game um, where we would have played Russia again in the gold medal and we had beaten them in a extended shootout before. So I think the layout, it, it would have been nice to wait to play those guys in the gold medal game and maybe it looks a little different on your score sheet from from a few miles away. Uh, I think there's a huge letdown to losing to those guys in the semis. Um, Finland seemingly, I don't want to, I don't want to misstate this because it all matters. And I would have coveted a bronze medal from that Olympics, but the letdown Finland seemed to regroup more and have that, you know what, let's get this done. And they just kind of, they played their game and we were not on it and they wiped us out in the bronze medal game, like you said. So left with our fourth place, fourth place medals and our, our tails tucked between our legs. So 2011, you named captain of the blues. Was that a surprise or did you kind of know that was coming when Brewer got traded? Uh, we had a sports psychologist that with that team and um, he was asking to meet with me during the summer and that was different than happened before and talking a lot of leadership things. So, you know, in those meetings then it came out that, his objective was to vet me to see how if he thought, you know, if he could verify that I would have been a good candidate for the next captain of the team. Um, obviously I was passing his psychological examination of me and no uh, kidding. Yeah. I, That's wild stuff. Was he around the team always or just yes, hired him? He was a guy that uh, did the, at the draft or at the combine did some stuff with me too. And, all the stuff like an ink blot test and like tell them stories about this and look at this picture and tell me the story. And it was, it was intensive, but it was very productive for me and, and stuff he could revisit. Then, you know, as I'm captain in 2011, he's referring back to an ink blot I did in 2003 and telling me, well, remember this when you were talking about, you know, this story and this is how it applies to you. And it was all really good and still relevant to my humanity. So um, he was still with the team when they won the cup in 19. I think he's still with the team. Um, so we call him the wizard and he'd just kind of lurk around and grab a couple guys and try to help them along the way and, and help them to be more productive and, and, you know, also identify some troubles if, if need be with, uh, you know, staving off some mental health issues. That's funny. Cause we, we have that in Chicago. We've had it on a few other teams and I steer clear yeah. for whatever reason. I'm like, don't talk to me. Don't look at me. I'm good. <laughs> like, and you're telling that he actually helps. Like he, he does, you know, for in any way possible, it, it was a benefit to your, your success. Yeah. He would, he would remind you or just give you a no think, think about like for, 
one of the ink blot, I think was a soaring dragon or something like that. So he'd be like, you're that, you're that soaring dragon, that Navy seal. You want to go into that combat and you want to just grab your guys and just remember that's who you are. And, you know, when it's time to drop the puck tomorrow, lead those guys. And it was just like, you know, if nothing else, it was a shot in the arm and a boost of confidence that you are the leader and you, you know, can go out there and assert yourself and guys will follow. Well, it obviously worked because you, gosh, I think I'm correct. You're the second longest tenured captain in St. Louis Blues history, which is not nothing. It's kind of cool. You followed a line of captains, which are the who's who of people, the Gretzky's, the Prongers, Brett Hall, Al McKinnis. Did you ever talk to any of those guys to get any, you know, advice? Or was it just like, here you go, kid. Here's the keys to the car. <laughs> well, Al was probably around the team most. And I don't know if you ever met Al, but he's one yep. of the most level-headed, you know, underspoken just kind of he's around and even keeled and um we had the same agent as well so there was a lot of common connection there along with you know a guy like Keith Kachuk who helped me assert myself in the league and a guy that I tried to model my game after a bit so those guys all are around town and willing to help and to have just conversations with them and and less with current circumstances of the team and how we need to organize or how we need to lead each other, but more of general direction and history with the team, because I think there's such a power in connecting with the guys of the past and what, yeah. that, what that crest means to them and what they've sacrificed to get the organization to where it is now into what it means. It should mean to each and every player, because it could just be another Jersey that you're punching clock and trying to score goals and trying to make a paycheck, or you're willing to do whatever it takes to, you know, bring glory to that uniform. And the latter obviously produces much better results than the former. Well, yeah. And you formed an identity for this team. I remember I played for Minnesota and Chicago and we battled with you guys. I loved going into St. Louis because I knew exactly what I was going to get. You were going to get punched in the face. You guys were going to dump the puck in and you were going to just try to run over you. And I still vividly remember being a defenseman and getting hemmed in my own zone for a good four minutes. And it's just wave after wave after wave of like, it was Bacchus, Berglund, Steen, McDonald, Boys, Oshie, Sabotka, like just insane amounts of talent, but everybody hit everybody pulled the rope and that starts from you. So it's, it's kind of cool to hear your mindset where it's not just like, okay, I'm the captain. You actively wanted to build the team in your mold, I guess you could say, because you guys were so hard to play against. Yeah, that was, that was very intentional, but I also think it was realistic that we knew that we couldn't play a skill game against a lot of the teams we were playing against. We were maybe underskilled, but if, we brought the will, especially the way the game was played back then, where you could hem a team and, and not every, you know, like every defenseman now can make a great first pass. If you can't make a great first pass, like, and all your plan is to clear out the front of the net and like block shots, you're not in a league because that's not the way the league's trended. Now it seems like every defenseman can escape the corner, skate mm-hmm. by a couple guys and then send it rink wide to another guy to create offense. And back then, no offense to some of the bigger defensemen. Careful. You could, you could kind of, you know, if they couldn't get the puck out and off the glass right away, it was like, okay, we might be able to get a line change, get a fresh line out here, stay in the zone. Uh, and the other trick is that first couple of years in St. Louis, we had the worst boards in the world that we knew if you tried to go D to D behind the net, it was sticking to the wall mm-hmm. or any dump was going to stick to the wall. And it was painful to pluck it off there and try to make a pass. So anything that got deep or you try to go D to D, it was green light to go hammer someone and put pressure on them because it wasn't going to be pretty with them picking it off. So try to play to your your knowledge and your advantage, and that was something we did. I, I think I've fought versus St. Louis more than any team <laughs> in the NHL, and there's nothing better than just fighting a Cam Jansen or a Ryan. I don't know. I just love – I loved – Going into St. Louis. Why did we never fight, David? I, I Because you're way too big for me. I would have run from you, sent DJ King or Cam Jansen or Kinger, I fought him, yeah. DJ Crombean or, uh, yeah, one of those guys. I mean, that was – you're out of my league, let's be honest. You fought Taveser a lot. Why do you always fight Johnny one time, Taves? One time he fought me. Twice? I thought it was twice. One time. 
one time. All right. Well, you mentioned, you know, you're the captain, you take over, you, you're, you're having a great run in St. Louis. You, you have this team in your mold and then you become a UFA and everybody in their brother is like, he's got to sign in St. Louis. That's their identity. You sign with the Bruins. Is that tough? Is that a tough decision? Was St. Louis offering you anything or was it again, radio silence? What happens that off season in 2016? Um, so story gets deeper. Alex, let's Petrangelo. see. We got lots of time, David. Yeah. Alex Petrangelo wisely schedules his wedding for July the 2nd in St. No. Louis. Uh, groom's dinner is June 30th on the Thursday free agencies, Friday, July 1st. So I'm in St. Louis. We still had a house there, obviously, cause we were playing there and it's groom's dinner night before. And, um, you got the interview process and, um, we're back and forth with St. Louis. And I wanted five years. I wanted five years. I wanted to play a thousand games and I wanted to stay in St. Louis and finish my career there. And, they were, we thought the market would be six years, maybe five years around a, a six number. So I was willing to take a, a hometown discount. Um, but they were, you know, barely reaching the five number for well, what's a hometown discount. If you, if you're looking for five at six, five at five. Yeah. Would have okay. been, um, and they wouldn't, wouldn't even discuss a fifth year. It was like, I want to spend the rest of my career in St. Louis in five years. And at no number would they discuss a fifth year. Is that right? That never got done. It was like, okay, we're going to see what happens on, on, in free agency. And then it came and Boston stepped up and said, you know, after talking with Bergeron and Marchand, that interview period we had um, and Don Sweeney and, um, Claude Julian, the coach at the time, it was like, this is going to be a great fit. I don't know why you want another right-handed centerman, but I'll be the third center behind Bergeron and Krejci. And if I'm a third line center on any team, I feel like we got a really good team. Mm-hmm. Um, so free agency came and they were signing bonus and no move clause. And then a limited, no trade. And I was like, this is everything we'd asked for. And so, you know what? we went back to St. Louis one more time and they weren't talking a fifth year. And so it was, uh, it was Boston. We went. So were, were any other teams in the mix? Cause you were a highly coveted UFA. Like you were probably the top guy in the market. Did any teams come knocking where you, they kind of inter- piqued your interest a little bit? Yeah. I talked with Minnesota a bit. Um, they were going to have oh, to yeah. make a move. Uh, Montreal called. And then I had always had interest in playing in Nashville. So I had poked out to, uh, David Poyle and he was saying that there's interest but they would have to make a move to create some space for me so um, you know there was other interest it wasn't as hot and heavy as Boston was so um, you know I I'd loved my time visiting Boston and then to know the team and the pedigree that they had and they hadn't made the playoffs in two years but they had great goalie that Z and, and Bergeron and Marsh and Kretsch and just all the guys that had been there forever so said what an opportunity and away we went. So did you, you were obviously at Peter Angelo's wedding. Did you sign, like, when did you sign the deal and say, Hey, here, Alex, here's your team. Did you ever have that conversation with him? Um, Well, truthfully that last year of my contract in St. Louis, I kind of had him by my side for everything, knowing that if I wasn't going to be around for, you know, past that deal in which you have the whole year from July one, the year prior till the, you know, July one, when you're a free agent to sign an extension. So to me, the writing was kind of on the wall that I think you see guys that are eligible for that extension. It happens in that first six months. And like a guy like Gabe Landeskog right now, like maybe they're just playing the game of chicken, but if it was going to get done, I feel like it would have gotten done already. Yeah. So I had Alex next to me in all the meetings and we had a small leadership group. Then it was him and Alex Steen and myself where we were doing some leadership coaching with a, a corporate leadership trainer and um, in all the meetings. So he kind of knew the ropes and I felt like he was in a good position if, if I didn't come back. And then, so the day in between his groom's dinner and his wedding is July 1st. I signed with Boston. He's got like a thing for the wedding party, which my wife and I were both in. So we go to the Cardinals game in a suite 
you know, right after I had signed in Boston and they put me on the jumbotron and the people in St. Louis give me a standing ovation as I just signed in free agency to leave St. Louis. And I was like, you know, this city really does love me. And you know what, that this, I'm going to miss things like this. So that was a nice kind of going away present. We had the wedding the next night and uh, you know, then shortly after he was, he was named captain. It was, uh, it was his turn. So you get to Boston, and obviously this is the first time you're playing for an NHL team besides St. Louis. What were some of the differences that struck you right away as far as, like, the culture, the locker room, the personalities? Like, how was it different from St. Louis? Yeah, the you know, I kind of sold it to my wife that, hey, it's an original six, it's big market, it's going to be, you know, I don't know if I expected Toronto, but it was going to be, uh, you know, kind of these are the big boys of the league, and we're coming from the small market St. Louis and all of a sudden it's going to be everything, you know, top notch. And, you know, we got there and in, in honesty, when I was in the room, I was waiting for that special sauce to show up to be like, this is why Boston sucks to play against. And this is why they're good every year. And this is why they've been to two cup finals, you know, and one and, and I just didn't see it. And then you start talking with some of the leadership and, not that it was dysfunctional, but it wasn't organized. And type A me was like, well, here's some simple things and we need to have some connection here. And um, it wasn't awful, but it, it with small amounts of organization, it was in, greatly improved. And then, uh, you know, we talked about the sports psychologist, Patrice Bergeron has his own sports psychologist and he brought him in to do a small meeting with just the leadership group. And then after that, probably biweekly, he was in facilitating team discussion and common, um, you know, some psychological principles, but just team open communication and connection, which went so far. And Bergie's one of the most humble down to earth. You know, if, if you could clone a perfect human and hockey player it's Patrice Bergeron and what a great place to start and him and Z and and the core that they had now had some structure and connection and Stanley Cup final you know a couple years later and you know we lost to Tampa my second year there and then we're in the final in my third year and um, you know they're knocking on the door and looking at uh, President Cups and or President's Trophies or whatever they call it. Never had one, so I don't know the name of it. Something like that. <laughs> so did you institute all that stuff? Were you the guy – like, did you feel comfortable enough in your – because it's intimidating going into a new locker room. I've done it a few times. Even when you're established, you don't want to, you know, rock the boat. They're they're a successful team. Did you dip a toe in, or did you just jump in and be like, what you guys are doing, this is garbage? Well, there was this way now. It wasn't really garbage. It was well, just, I know, I know. And you know how it is. Like some teams, like you walk in the locker room and it's like, n- nobody's like reaching out to you or grabbing you aside. And you're just kind of like, I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to get some equity in this room. And then I can start to have a voice because you got to establish yourself or whatever. The, you know, the old way was like game one, I'm going to fight somebody and like right. show yeah. the boys that I'm here and I'm, I'm in it. Um, Z pulled me aside maybe day one or day two and said, Hey, you know, I respect you as a leader and we haven't made the playoffs here in two years. And if you see something that needs to be done, like you're, you know, tell me, let's get it done. We're in this together. And to me, that was an incredible moment for me to just be like, okay, you know, they want me here to be part of this group and and not to hold back. And, um, you know, from then I felt empowered to be like, this could be done better. This could be done better. This could be done better. And those guys with open arms, you know, relished it. And we were just got better and better after that. So you actually, did you actually like see that transformation happen in your time there where what you were trying to implement was, was working? No question. I think, again, I am very like, I make spreadsheets for everything. Like I keep lists and I'm intentional and, calendars and organizers and like that's just my personality so it's almost secretary work 
that needed to be done and being like, we should meet as a leadership group on our own, like every week or two. And we should have like separate roles where if, if we don't have specific roles of like, to me, one of the more important ones was like off ice captain of like team togetherness, team parties, organizer, like we, it shouldn't be the week before Halloween and we don't have a team Halloween party scheduled. Mm-hmm. Here. Like we got a night off. We're having a team Halloween party. And even if we're a little groggy for the next game, that togetherness we gained in that, that team Halloween party, like every team wins the game after rookie party, because you all had the best time of your season together. You had such team togetherness and you look at each other and you're like, we got to get this done somehow. And you go and get it done. And to me, those opportunities, like if you don't have someone being intentional about that, you look at each other a week before and be like, are we having a Halloween party? We don't have a place to do it. We don't have a, a, you know, does anyone have costumes? What's the schedule look like? And then it doesn't happen. You're like, miss that. Okay. Super Bowl party, which the Patriots were always in. So it was very nice to have, especially after they win Super Bowls and then guys go downtown and, and live it up. But those types of team togetherness, we needed a guy to, you know, spearhead that we needed a guy to make sure that the families and the wives were taken care of and that everyone was, you know, feeling good about their games or when their wives and kids came to the game, we needed someone to uh, be the direct go between, between the coach or the GM Um, all those different roles that we need someone to talk with the community relations department and say, this is a good um, event that we do and we love it. This one really sucks and guys dread it. Can we change that? Or can we, you know what? They're all piled into November. That's no good for us. Can we switch those around or sprinkle? Like those things can be segregated and appointed and kind of managed so that everyone's got their role. They can report to the leadership group and then you can have some known commodities and who's taking care of what and it just functions better and so that was kind of part of what my role was coming there and it worked out all right so who's the party planner who who's planning the the big uh the super bowl party the the masters tournament pool well tuca was the guy that uh we kind of appointed that he's tuca and crutch together were uh we're party planning guys and crutch crutch is a a good under the radar guy. And then Tukes is, uh, you know, he knows what he wants and he's, he's going to make it happen. So it, was, it all worked out. When you were there, it was like championship city. The Red Sox were winning. The Celtics had a great team. The Pats, did you pal around with those guys? Cause I know like you see athletes here and there. Did you hang out with those guys? Were they in your life at all? Um, well, the, Patriots are were in Foxborough, which yeah. some of the guys even lived in Rhode Island. I don't know if it's tax wise or just cost of living wise. Um, not a, much with those guys. I think Joe Kelly and Tory Krug might have had the closest uh, relationship. I think uh, Goskowski and and Tuca had some common connections somehow, but there wasn't a lot of in- intermingling of sports groups there. Um, but there was certainly a high standard set by all of those clubs that, and not that Boston has a low standard to begin with, but when everyone is winning a championship, when you lose in game seven of the finals, it feels like a failure. Like, and it's not like, I don't know how many great players never played in the finals, let alone won a championship. So it's a great accomplishment to play in a finals. Not that you're happy with it, but looking back, say three years removed, you go, that was an incredible run. And we had to sacrifice a ton and we were one game away from winning a Stanley cup. And you got to be proud of that. Just like you have to be proud of, you know, a silver medal that you lose in overtime or playing in another Olympics and losing to Canada in a one, nothing game. Like to me, I think the older I get, the more I appreciate some of those hardships as growing moments, but also as accomplishments that, yeah, they could have been better, but you also need to acknowledge that those are great moments. Well, you, you mentioned the game seven, the loss going into that finals when St. Louis won, were you like, come on, or were you relishing the opportunity to play against St. Louis in the finals? I was like, come on. I, I think, you know, that sort of, emotional layer was unnecessary yeah. for a guy in his 
13th season, finally playing in his first final to have layered on top of that. That being said, you know, and I was, it was the third year out of St. Louis. So there had been a bunch of turnover, but still probably half the team were guys that I was buddies with. And now it was me or them going to win a cup. And I, I certainly wanted it to be me, obviously. And so uh, there was some, I don't want to say numbness, but having to park those emotions to play the game. Um, going to St. Louis was probably the most difficult part just because a city that had loved me at a Cardinals game as I was leaving, now you know, walking down the street to go get some food from the hotel, you're still recognizable as who you are and the people are much less kind when there's a Stanley cup on the line. And to see that side of the city was, um, you know, I think even after we left St. Louis, it was like, that's home. We spent 10 years there from 22 to 32. We grew up there. We had so many connections, you know, and mostly not in hockey of great people that we had met in an amazing city that that was going to be our hometown. We're going to retire there. Well, seeing that side of the city, like it took me a good 18 months to even think about moving. Like Kelly's like, well, we're still going back there. And I'm like, no, like, why would I want to go back there? And it's, you know, saw the ugly side and going to have to be reminded of that game seven loss all the time. And now, you know, those wounds have healed a bit and it's back on the list of potential places to settle down, but we haven't made that decision uh, what that's going to look like either. So you mentioned, yeah, obviously you retired this past season. You played in Anaheim for a few seasons, battled a lot of injuries. What you're, you're a super smart guy. Like you're obviously handle yourself. Well, this has been like a crazy, interesting conversation. Do you have any aspirations of staying in hockey, going into management, going into whatever avenue you really want to go into? Um, Objective one right now is to be dad. Uh, mm-hmm. two young kids, a six-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. So I, I think once they're in school full-time, which will be probably two years, I'd like to do something more involved. That doesn't preclude the idea of staying in the game in some role or um, whatever that might look like. Um, but I want to make sure I'm not missing those milestones. and those. It's huge, yeah. I mean, I just feel like I, there's some dad guilt there for sure. I felt that even – in summers when I've been playing of like, I miss this and this. So I'm not going to really, you know, take more time away from you. I'm going to be present and be around you guys as much as I can this off season. Cause it's just some time you relish. So I want to be that all the time. And if I can fit a role in that I can, you know, be present, but also stay in the game, that would be great. And if I can't, you know, doing nothing, I've been very fortunate to, play long enough where I don't need to do something, but I've, I've also run the gamut of my wife's, you know, put her goals, dreams and aspirations aside to follow me across the country for 15 years. Uh, she got her nursing degree and she's, you know, really driven to do things, especially philanthropically with, you know, our charity athletes for animals that maybe she gets to pick and I can be full-time dad to stay at home and let her chase something for a while. And if I can fit something into what's left then that's fine but you know the flip side of that i've i always wanted to do i was in electrical engineering in in college and i wanted to do engineering school and then law school and do patent law that maybe i'd still do law school and it's probably not patent law but go back to you know doing something philanthropically or to just help the world be a better place in in those regards so the 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 big answer is no clue uh but all options on the board and i know what my priority is at the moment which is great because I think people just get this idea of, oh, you're a professional hockey player. You have so much free time. You play the game and you go home. It's like, no. Yeah. Like During the season, when you're at home, you're not present. Like yeah. you, you're, you're focused on the game. You're always planning your next meal, your next nap, your next workout. And eat. my wife can attest to that. She, she tells me like, yeah, you were there, but you weren't there. Yeah. And so that was her biggest thing for me retiring. She's like, you, you need to retire. We have four kids now. It's, it's time. <laughs> and it was huge. And so now it, it was the best decision I ever made to retire. And it sounds like you kind of have a plan. I finished my school at the U of M. So I went to Michigan Tech, as you know, and I took classes at U of M, got my engineering degree, and away I went. So you never know. I, I need an electro, electrical engineer in my office. So if you ever need a job, just saying, 
David. We could be the only NHL tandem engineering group in the country, maybe. Maybe. Well, maybe we need a – we might need a couple cold beverages to uh, iron off some differences that we've had over the years. But uh, yeah. Lunch, it's- arm wrestle breaks. It's fine. Like, we can make it work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's so funny. So, I want to end it with this question. It kind of struck me when we started this interview – you mentioned how the game's changed and how it's a different game. And it just, it was interesting. Does David Backus, 17 years old, make it in the NHL if he starts right now today? No. Really? No. Not, it's, it's a definitive no. No. Really? So, you, I don't know. You, I don't think so. I think you'd find a way. You're a good hockey player, David. Yeah, but how did I get into the league? On, on a, in a skill league, I am bottom 10% of the league in skill. I think you look around the league and the guys who are valuable now, there's a, a very high premium for a guy who can move like you. You're very humble, very humble guy. But look at like a guy like Mark Stone, who's, who is knocked on his skating all the time, which I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is productive point-wise at a level that I never was. And I'm the same way with Mark Stone, not to get off topic or pick on him, but like watching him, I'm like, it's ugly what he does. But then you watch and you're like, every puck he's around, he wins the puck. Every play there is to be made, he makes the play. So I guess I see myself as a Mark Stone ugly type player with that those playmaking abilities that he has just – I don't think I have that. I don't think a defenseman in the world is nervous of Mark Stone – going into the corner. But would, you be, would you be in today's game nervous of me coming into this corner? Like in my head playing in the last couple of years was I've got a free run at that guy. He put himself in a vulnerable position in my early days. It was green light, put him on the ice mm-hmm. and not that you wanted to hurt him, but you were going to hit him as hard as he can. So he never wanted to touch the puck the rest of the game. If he returned now it's, two to four games on your first suspension and probably, you know, six to 10 on your next suspension. Well, that's going through your head when you're forechecking. That's interesting. 100%. That's- or there's a defenseman coming at you and you're like, I got a great angle at this guy. Yeah. I should light him up. But if he shifts at the last second and now I just clip his head, I'm getting suspended for it. So there's less – either less intensity to that contact or it's not contact. And if, if that happened early in my career, I was shown that clip and embarrassed for it, maybe in front of the team and not just on a side note with the coach. Now it's not even mentioned because that's not part of what we're doing. What's funny is I always th- think of when, you know, this is how you hit, this is how you don't hit. Before every season, the NHL sends out a video. Yeah. And it shows you the correct way to hit and the correct way not to hit. If you were to play that video now from 10 years ago, every single one of those hits that was a correct hit would be misconduct. Certainly. It's so funny how things have changed so fast. Do you think it's a good thing for the league or it's going to end up just kind of eating itself where it's, it's not hockey anymore? Well, also as a guy with multiple concussions to my uh, history, I, I don't know. I, I think the game looks better from a skill standpoint. Um, but I also am a traditionalist and like that warrior mentality that you needed where an opening draw, you looked across a face off and it was like, you were me today. And I'm, you're going to have to put me, you know, the trainer's going to have to tell me to stop in order for me to you know, stop tonight. Good luck you know, making me quit. That's the part of the game that I think made it glorious back in the day and still has appeal. And we don't need to lose that. Do I want guys getting hit in the head unnecessarily and having traumatic brain injuries and life altering concussions? No, but I think there's also a component of like Jeff Kutcher at, um, that was with university of Michigan. I went to see him when I had the last concussion I had, um, he does like a HD MRI of your brain and does like brain mapping of the waves and like gets down to how your brain looks and not just, Oh, 
tick number one, tick number two. You had a headache for two days, concussion. Like to me, that's such a black and white when there's so much gray, you know, how's your baseline on your impact test? Which and is, everyone's different too, which is. How has that changed over the years? I'm interested to know, like I started taking that test in junior in 2002 in Lincoln. What does my baseline then, because the same test, some of the same words compared to 20 years later and, you know, nine or 10 documented concussions, which Dr. Kutcher thinks is probably two or three or four over, but there's also the ones that weren't documented early in my career where I know I got hit in the head and I don't want to be a guy with concussions on my history to a lose my spot in the lineup or B to be a damaged product to sign another contract. So I think the system's flawed, the self-reporting's flawed and the, um, doctor medical expense to really dive into what's behind this and everyone's got their guru um, is a bit flawed and surface level rather than seven days you can come back like I think it could be better all around and not to just be a poo-poo on the system but part of it is on the player to self-report or to have a independent third-party spotter doesn't know about it let's get an evaluation and then we can come together and say yeah i'm dinged up and we got to take some time off sounds like they need a couple spreadsheets david i that's what it sounds like both excel and numbers installed on my computer holy (laughs) don't want to brag but i got them both (laughs) all right one last one your your most memorable hockey memory on the ice could be college could be high school could be pros one thing that you're like gosh that was that was super cool oh the first thing that comes to mind is finally beating chicago in the playoffs um at home in a game seven and then we went, that was my last year in St. Louis. We ended up in the conference final, lost to San Jose. Uh, but to finally get over that hump of Chicago was our roadblock forever in the playoffs of, you know, didn't matter if we were the better team. They just seemed to elevate in the playoffs or we were up 2 nothing in a series against them, against L.A. and didn't have that killer instinct to put them away or they found something to rally around. So, I think getting over that hump beating them in that game seven, it was my first game seven I played in was uh, that's a memory that I won't forget at home. And to finally see those guys dejected at the end of a series as you shook their hand rather than us being the team that was, that was feeling terrible. Extra hard handshake to Jonathan Taves. Take that. John. You know what? There's always something brought up with Jonathan Taves and I, and I don't know if he spoke to the relationship, but. Oh, got, he hates you. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. I think. I take that as a compliment. Like everybody I hate that I play and and that's hate I think is a professional hate. Like Yeah, not a personal not there's the respect. Like Jonathan Taves and I have worked out in the same workout room and you know it said hi and there's a cordialness and a respect factor that is I think remarkable about the game where we can go pound each other and I think we both know the nature of our on ice relationship is that he's a better hockey player than I am, but I can annoy him and maybe pound him down and get under his skin and get him thinking about things other than hockey. And maybe he's got to look twice before he touches a puck because he knows I'm going to be breathing down his throat and doesn't want to get hammered. And so there's a delicate balance there. And sometimes he got the better of me in the matchup. Sometimes I got the better of him in a matchup, but there's a respect there and I hated playing against him and I'm hoping he hated playing against me, but the guys I hated playing against the most when I ended up being teammates with them were the best teammates. And that's held true in almost every scenario that I've had in the game. And I would guess that uh, that would be the case with Jonathan Taze. Is well. that the same kind of deal with Jamie Ben? Cause we, we, we kind of tease out people we're going to interview and everyone's like, ask him about Jamie Ben. What's going on there? Well, Jamie Ben and I have a love hate relationship. I mean, a big burly guy that I think plays a similar game again, probably more skilled than I ever was, but um, a big guy that likes to assert himself as kind of the alpha dog in a game. And there's times where the alpha dogs got to smash into each other and, and show their teeth. And I think we fought three times. Uh, most recently it was an 1130 start in Dallas. Uh, I think it was after our rookie party. And so, Oh, he asked me to go on the opening draw and I was like, 
I'm not even sweating yet. And he's like, <laughs> we're going. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so we, we went after it. And uh, you know what? I, I think those are the guys that when everybody's retired and we're, we're old and not in good shape anymore and we have some sort of NHL reunion event to be at, uh, that's going to be a fun beverage to have and reminisce and, and give each other a hard time because I'm a huge fan of his game. I think he, he yeah. played the right way. Um, and I felt it was necessary. I felt it was necessary when we played him, him, you know, Rick Nash or Corey, Pe- like those guys are elite players. And if I can take them off the ice for five minutes and have them think about punching me rather than scoring goals, I win. And so that was my mentality. And Jamie Ben was one of those guys that I needed to get physical with and try to push a couple of his teammates where he felt he had to come answer to me. And then, you know, not that I ever won a fight, but that I could stand up for myself, stand up for my teammates and take them off the ice was to me, something that would help our team win. Unbelievable. No, I totally agree. And I, I hope I'm there for that conversation between you and Jamie. <laughs> I think that'd be fascinating. That'd be so cool. But anyways, thank you so much, man, for doing this. You're unbelievable. My like pleasure. awesome. You have me on. No problem. Good. Good luck with everything. We're going to be in Minnesota. Maybe next month. Maybe I'll give you a show. We can grab a drink, chop Please. it up a little bit. Please do. But anyways, David Backus, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Dropping the Gloves with John Scott, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. 